Miracles and Magic and Mystery is about the Hasidic tradition. Um, And for those of you who know anything about the Hasidic tradition or who were here last time, you know that essentially it it begins with Israel um, ben Eliezer, who came to be known as the Baal Shem Tov. He lived 1698 to 1760. Is that the 18th century or the 17th? I'm good on this. I'm not good with numbers, but I wrote that down. So that's when he lived, in the Carpathian Mountains. And um, the Baal Shem Tov, which literally means master of the good name, Baal Shem Tov, Shem in Hebrew means name. Um, So the first question is, what name is the Baal Shem Tov the master of? He became known as Master of the Good Name. What name do you think they're talking about when they say Master of the Good Name? God's name. Master of the name. How many names does God have? Depends on who you're asking, right? <clears throat> Jewish tradition says there are 70 names or 72 names, depending upon where you're reading in the Talmud. <coughs> Thank you. Um, 70 names for God. Um, Seventy names for God. And um, in Hebrew, 70 Hebrew names for God. There are lots of other names for God. 70 names for God. Uh, the, Hebrew, the name that we, the Baal Shem Tov is master of is God's personal, intimate Secret than not so secret because God told what God's secret name was, which in Hebrew is Yud Hey Vav Hey. Yud Hey Vav Hey in Hebrew, which uh, when we read it, we always read it Adonai. So whenever you read Adonai, almost all the time, when you read Adonai, it's the Yud Hey Vav Hey name of God. God's name's written lots of different God's names in the Torah: Elohim, El Shaddai. You know, there's all kinds of names for God. But this name, God tells Moses, this is my personal private name that I didn't tell Abraham, I didn't have tell Isaac, and he didn't tell Jacob, but I'm telling you. <clears throat> the name, you know. And names are very powerful, after all. What's the first thing that Adam in the Garden of Eden gets to do to show that he's the most powerful creature on the planet? What's he get to do? He gets to name all the other animals. You know, he didn't get to name himself, but he gets to name all the other animals. Naming something gives you power over it. It's kind of like, remember the wonderful fairy tale, Rumpelstiltskin. Remember that tale? So what was the point of Rumpelstiltskin was, Rumpelstiltskin said, if you could guess my name or whatever, you have power over me. Um, Because naming gives you power. Yeah. So you're asking a very rational question. Is not for just classification because human beings like to classify things. <coughs> Excuse me. Yes, we, of course, human beings are meaning makers. We can't stand something that's meaningless or random. So we take random things and we 
create an organization around them, whether there was an organization inherent in them or not. It's a great psychological experiment that was done, the name of which, of course, I can't remember, but back in the 50s, a great psychological experiment where um, at some university where they took a bunch of people, college students, because they're the best guinea pigs, put college students in a couple of rooms, and they gave them a sheet of paper with numbers, like a whole series of numbers, and they said, your job is to figure out the sequence of these numbers. What's the pattern of these numbers? And they put them in, like, you know, ten different rooms and, and different groups of... And, of course, everybody figured out the pattern, except for there wasn't a pattern. They were randomly generated, but everybody figured out a pattern. Oh, here's what the pattern is, because that's how our minds work. We can't stand randomness. We have to impose order on chaos. Oh, by the way, the entire Torah, now hidden by this board, but the Torah, there's three of them back there, is about order out of chaos. We all know the very beginning of Genesis, you know, Bereshit, bara Elohim. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and the and it was tohu vavohu, it says in Hebrew. It was unformed and void, and out of this chaos, God creates order. And the whole six days of creation is this progression of order from chaos, you know, from the broadest categories to the most narrow categories, and separating out the earth from everything else, light from darkness, and then the earth from the other planets, and then water from land, you know, and we're getting more and more specific, and then vegetation, and then animals, and then finally, yay, the crown of creation, the person who wrote the story, the human, <laughs> human beings, right? Because that's how human minds work. Regardless, the naming of something is in human society an act of power, an act of control. Um, giving names, why do you think we take away people's names from them when they go to prison? Not just because it's easier to, to keep track of them, but because it dehumanizes and controls people. Suddenly they're just a number. Suddenly you've taken away part of their humanity, and it's easier to, in theory, control people. You know, all the science fiction things about the future that are negative have to do with losing names and getting rid of names and having numbers and having whatever. Why do you think concentration camps and we have numbers? It's to take away the name. So, yeah, you had a question. I saw your hand go up. Yes. Are you going to argue with me? Ah, beautiful question. How does this naming that I'm talking about square with the naming of God? Because after all, human beings name God. Lots of times. All kinds of names. You know, um, that's exactly my point. We name something that we want to have some kind of connection control over. So in naming God, in naming the unnameable, which is one of the names of God, the, uh, you know, we gain a little bit of control over that which is beyond our control because God is, by definition, beyond our control. So we start, the names of God often are, are attributes of God, qualities of God. We'll call, one of the names of God is, you know, Harachaman from, you know, the Compassionate One with a capital T, the capital T, the Compassionate One. So we take qualities of godliness and we use them as names of God. All of this is because I started with Baal Shem Tov, the, uh, the master of the good name, the good name being God's name. This name is like a magic name because it's the most, according to the Torah, 
and Jewish mysticism, it's the most intimate of God's names. And so the Hasidic masters would write God's name on amulets as a protection or versions of God's name. For example, on our beautiful ark, you all know our beautiful ark, you can't see it over there. I love how I teach, it's total stream of consciousness. So, uh, so here's our ark, which is what? What's the ark? What's the image in this ark? Burning bush. Looks like a tree of life, also a tree of life. It's a burning bush, because this is a symbol of revelation. Burning bush is like one of those great iconic Torah moments of revelation. <clears throat> God speaks out of the burning bush. So this is a burning bush, that's why it's lit, and you know, and then the Torah sort of emerge out of the burning bush. There are two names of God on this ark, written on this ark. One of them is this. This Hebrew letter, which is the Hebrew letter Hey. Hey. It's a symbol of God's name in rabbinic writing. Why? What does Hey stand for? It stands for here, Hashem, the name. Master of the name. The name, because the name is one of God's names. Only Jews would do that. What's God's name? Name. That's God's name. The name. You know, it's the name with a capital T and a capital... The name. What name? God is the God's name. Or this name, or the yud heh vav The name. So we call God the name. <clears throat> God called... Like we call God Hamakom, the place. Where's the place? Why is God called the place? Because when the Hasidic Rebbe Menachem Mendel of the town of Kutz <coughs> asked, where is God? The answer was, wherever you let God in. That's where God is. That's the fundament, one of the core ideas of Hasidic thought, is that God is everywhere, but only in potential. You know, everywhere that you let God into that moment, that place, that experience, that relationship, then holiness is there, then godliness is there, then God is there, then you can experience God. So, similar to uh, a very Reconstructionist response to the question, where was God in the Holocaust, in the concentration camp? And the answer, one answer would be not in the brutality of the guards, but rather in those moments when a prisoner in a concentration camp had this much bread and broke it in half and gave it to someone else. That action was godliness. That action was God's presence. That's how you discover holiness and sacredness, even in the worst of situations and the worst of places. Where is God? Wherever you let God in. So we have on our ark, because this is a symbol of revelation, not only do we have Torahs inside, just to prove that it's really an ark, but we have the hay here, and these, the handles, they're rather large, so they look like Hebrew rashes, but they're actually yuds. So one of the names of God, one of the ways God's name is written is with two yuds, yud, yud. And you still read it Adonai. It's another version of reading Adonai. And so we placed that here on the ark as another symbol of God's presence and revelation. This is a sanctuary. You know, on the outside of the building, when we dedicated the building, <clears throat> those of you who were here, some of you were, 
bunch of you were. When we dedicated the building, there's a plaque outside on Muskingum. And the plaque has a phrase from the Torah, uh, <coughs> the Torah portion of a week or so ago, that said, Asuli Mikdash V'Shachanti B'Tocham, which means, build me a sanctuary that I might dwell among them. That's what it literally says. Asuli Mikdash V'Shachanti B'Tocham. Build me a sanctuary that I might dwell among them. One of the great commentaries on that, that Torah statement by God is, shouldn't it say that I might dwell within it? Build me a sanctuary that I might dwell within it. That's usually build me a house that I might live within it. You usually don't say build me a house that I might live among them, except for that's how God manifests, is in community among them. Build me a sanctuary, so that says God in the Torah, and if you build me a sanctuary, you could also read it, if you build me a sanctuary, you'll find me in your relationships. Amongst them, within them, them meaning us, the people. Because, you know, like the tree falling in the forest and no one being there to hear it, what's the difference if there's God, if there's no people around to appreciate this holiness of life? It's irrelevant. You know, godliness and God is only relevant when there are human beings to appreciate that sense of the divine. The Baal Shem Tov, what he taught, and what began as one of the core values of Hasidism throughout all of the teachers on these stories that one of these days we're going to read in a minute, is the idea of searching for the sparks of holiness and God's presence in the everyday of our lives. The everyday, ordinary experiences of our lives are opportunities for experiencing God. You don't have to go to the synagogue to find God. Thank God, because most people don't go to a synagogue, so they wouldn't be able to. Otherwise, you don't, you don't have to go anywhere to find God. You find God, as Menachem Mendel said, wherever you let God in. You know, in any moment, in any relationship, in any place. There are people, of course, who go to beautiful, inspiring places and say they feel a sense of God's presence up on top of the mountaintop, overlooking the ocean, you know, wherever they go, when they're bicycling for 100 miles or the things that some of you do, when they climb mountains, when they do go skiing, when they, you know, stand at Mount Rushmore and look at all those cute faces, whatever. The magnificence of the universe around them, bless you, when they stand out and look up at the stars at night, obviously not in Los Angeles, but they go somewhere outside where you can actually see stars, and they see this, you know, the remarkable vastness of space. How can you not be awed by that and feel a sense of God's presence, the presence of of the creator that created the universe by whatever name? So the other thing about 70 names for God is... Maybe God's name is Jesus. Maybe God's name is Krishna. Maybe God's name is, uh, you know, Allah. Maybe God's name is whatever God's name is. God's name is whatever people, it's irrelevant. They're all human, as we said before, human beings invented all these names. Human beings invented all of this stuff. Human beings wrote every sacred literature of every religious tradition in the world. It didn't drop from heaven, my opinion. Human beings wrote them. 
human beings wrestling with how do we express the inexpressible? How do we identify that which is beyond our understanding? How do we answer the questions that that bother us, that for which there seems to be no answer about the meaning of life and the purpose of life? And what are we doing here since we're all going to die anyway? Which is one of the fundamental questions that people wrestle with. You know, what's the struggling about? I did a funeral today. Somebody, woman came home, found her husband, had died. You know, and the reality is, as with most of us, you sort of die in mid-sentence. You die in mid-step. You have plans for the evening. You have plans for next month. Someone's got where I'm going to go and what I'm going to do and who I'm going to see. And then all of a sudden life cuts short. You know, at whatever age, zero to 120, and at every stage and at every age, it's in mid-sentence, it's in mid-step. And human beings have forever, therefore, wrestled with what does that mean and what's beyond and issues of life and death. And the whole, the Torah and every other sacred literature, in part, is speaking to that issue. That there's something beyond the self, there's something beyond the physical, that is clearly the voice of God in the Torah talking to us, that source of creation, the, the creation of life that we celebrate. And actually, Jews are really interesting because we don't celebrate birthdays as much as we celebrate death days in Jewish tradition. You know, all those plaques up there on the wall and yurt sites and yisker services, you know, we, we don't celebrate so much the birthdays of great people. We celebrate the death days of are great people. The the Talmud even says that the day, I think I said this one of these, my last series of classes, that the day of one's death is better than the day of one's birth. It's a great phrase from the Talmud. It's like, what are you talking about? The day of one's death is better than the day of one's birth. <clears throat> you know, but it's for the obvious reason. A baby is born and it's like, a baby, what have you done for me lately? You know, cry and poop. That's what you've done for me lately. You know, the end of one's life is when all of a sudden you gather together, as we did today in Simi Valley in 90-degree weather, um, and you talk about someone and what they meant to people, what they meant to someone, what their accomplishments are, what their life arc was about, short or long. And in that sense, that's what the rabbis meant when they said the day of one's death is better than the day of one's birth. (coughs) They meant like a ship that goes out, and they used that analogy in the Talmud, you know, the tradition is everyone stands around and claps and cheers and waves a ship out. They should clap and cheer and wave the ship back when it comes back. Because when it's starting, who knows what the, what's going to happen on the journey. When it comes back safely, ah, then it's worth celebrating. And finding out, ooh, tell me the stories of your adventures. Where did you go? What did you see? What did you do? You know, and that's the quality of the life that you, that, that, those voyagers experienced just as at the end of our lives. We gather together and we tell stories about the people we love and what we cherish and what they meant to us. How did I get on this? I don't know. So, the point of... It's the way I think. The essential message of the early end uh, Hasidism was simple. It's the phrase from the prophet Isaiah that says, Melo chol haaretz kavodo. The whole earth is full of your glory. The whole earth is full. And then it's like a blessing treasure hunt. Life is a giant blessing treasure hunt for the Hasidim. 
It's searching for the blessings of life. That's the treasure. The treasure's out there. It may be hidden. And mostly because the Hasidic movement was kind of fundamentally an anti-intellectual movement. It was about experience and not intellectualism. In fact, it was counter to those who were the, the, uh, the intellectuals who studied Judaism. It was experience God in your body, in dance, in song, in love making, in every physical activity that you do is the possibility of experiencing holiness. Yes, saw your hand up. Uh, yes, um, you were talking about the presence of God. And my question is, is the presence of God different in different situations, like the negative and the positive? Do you think of God differently if things are going well uh, than you would expect in your life? Mm-hmm. It's a beautiful question. So the question was, for those who couldn't hear, and those on the podcast, um, is it different, your experience of God different, when it's a, things are going well and things are not going well? Um, you know, is God the same? Is your sense of God the same? It's interesting because there's a, there's a phrase in the Talmud also that says, you're supposed to praise God for the bad just as you praise God for the good. In fact, it says you're supposed to bless God. We have those Baruch Atah Adonais that are blessings. You're supposed to bless God for the bad that happens in your life just as you bless God for the good. Why would they say that? Why would they say you're supposed to bless God for the bad just as you bless God for the good? It's kind of a crazy idea. You'd think you'd curse God for the bad Any bad in God because God is a, whatever God does is for the good. Ah, so maybe one idea is you don't want to find bad in God. God is God, and we talk about God as being good. So it's just that your mind may not be big enough, smart enough to figure out what's the God's plan in whatever is happening right now that seems to be bad. Um, and indeed, that argument is a very popular religious argument about how to cope with bad things that happen in life, which is, God has a plan, you just don't know it, you can't figure it out, have faith that, you know, someday it'll be revealed to you. And for many people, that answer works for them. That, for many people... That answer really pisses them off. And it doesn't work for them at all. And they say, when something bad happens, it was bad. You know, somebody dies you love, it's bad. Uh, and so they, they need to find another way of responding to that same question. Why should you bless God for the bad like you bless God for the good? So, yeah. So for sure, sometimes, Susan says, what looks like it's bad in the beginning actually does turn out to be not bad. Or rather, it was bad, it was bad, but what you did with the bad, how you reacted to that trauma 
or that horror or that tragedy was took you in a place that you wouldn't have gone and there ended up being something good out of it. Not that that was the reason for it. I mean, I don't personally believe God does bad things to people so they can learn lessons and do something better. But I do believe human beings have the capacity, the remarkable, resilient capacity to take bad things that happen to us, small bad things and big bad things, and to, in our, in, because of our own talents and our own sensitivity and our own abilities, to use them and make something good in our own lives as a result. We have that ability. Now, one of the things that I say all the time, because I believe it, and I'll say it again, is that uh, the Torah also talks about blessings and curses, which is where the rabbis got this idea, you should bless God for the bad things, because it says that God gives those blessings and curses in life. And the fact of the matter is, often you can't tell which are the blessings and which are the curses in life. That's for sure. For sure, all of us have had experiences of things happening, and at that moment, we thought that thing was the worst thing that happened. We lost our job. You know, our relationship broke up. We were pining away for that person. And in the end, we ended up with a better job. We ended up in a different career. We ended up with all kinds of... That as we step back from it, what started out as a curse ended up being a blessing, and often it's the reverse. You think it's the, you know, the best thing since sliced bread, and it turns out to be like, how did I get stuck here? Happens all the time. So another way of thinking about why you should bless God for, which is what Hasidim teaches well, you bless God for the bad as the good. Any other suggestions? Yeah. Very often, what prayer is, is asking for strength. Strength to cope with that which life's, life gives us, all the twists and turns that we don't anticipate, some of which we like and some of which we don't like, uh, learning how to cope with the totality of life. Here's one of the things, one of the reasons that we say you should bless God for the bad as well as the good. Because life is messy and complicated. It's not either or. Nobody in this room has all one or all the other. Nobody here has had all a good life. Unless that's the way you choose to see everything that happens to you. You know, without pain, without suffering, without sickness, without death, without loss, without sorrow. Nobody has that. We have all of it. We have good and bad. We have blessings and curses. All of us. That's the nature of life. You know, I say this all the time too, and apologize for my repetitions, but you got me, so you get stuck with them. The, uh, you know, my favorite image metaphor, I suppose, for life is the EKG. They plug you into an EKG to see what your heart is, and if you're alive, this is what it does. Right? This is what it, this is what your heart does. Up and down. Up. This you don't want to see. They plug you in and it's doing this, something's wrong. Seriously wrong. Right? That's death. That's not life. This is life. This is literally the pulse of life. You can't avoid this. You don't get to vote on it. This is what life is. Up and down, up and down. Some people's are like this. Some people's are like this. Everybody's is up and down and up and down. Nobody's is this. When you get to the end, that's what it is. The very nature of living is the ups and downs 
the triumphs and the tragedies, the joys and the sorrows of life. That is living. And so we bless God for our lives. That's why you bless God for the bad as well as the good. Because you bless God for the gift of this life which has all of that stuff in it. All the time for everybody. Ups and downs and ins and outs and blessings and curses and joys and sorrows. And that's the reality of life. Some are longer, some are shorter, but all of them are short, after all. You know, like this in, in time. After all, a tree lives longer than we do. So, you know, we shouldn't get too arrogant about ourselves. But rocks, after all, you know, they live much longer than everybody, so to speak. So, you know, some people that are kind of like rocks. But the idea is to find God, that all of life is filled with God's glory and it's a gigantic, everyday blessing hunt. Hunting for blessings. So, we're going to read this in one second. Let me just... Uh, here's a little history lesson. Ready? Jews were expelled from England in 1290, expelled from France in 1306 and again in 1394, expelled from Hungary in 1349, expelled from Austria in 1421, Expelled from Lithuania in 1445 and again in 1495. Expelled from Spain, of course, in the famous 1492. Expelled from Portugal in 1497. Prohibited from living in Russia from the 15th century to the end of the 18th century. Expelled from Bohemia and Moravia in 1744. And, uh, should I go on? So, um, you'd think, who would want to join this people? We can't stay put. They keep getting kicked out of... Look at all these countries we got kicked out of. We are the quintessential wandering Jews. That's why we're called the wandering Jews, because we kept getting kicked out of every country. There is. So far, we haven't got kicked out of here yet. But, you know, maybe Trump gets elected. Maybe we'll get kicked out. Who knows? But he's kicking everybody else out, so he hasn't got around to the Jews yet. But, you know, if they start with one, you never know who's coming next. So not that that was a political statement at all. Just saying. Um, in any event, so here's the thing. Jewish mysticism, I'm retired, I can get away with it. Jewish mysticism, <laughs> that's my mantra for everything. I'm retired, I can get away with it. Uh, Jewish mysticism is, which is part of the whole Hasidic tradition, recognizes that we as a people have been, are in exile. Look, Exiled from all of these, everywhere. Wandering the earth, no place to rest. Certainly it was before Israel came along, and we at least had our own country back again. Not that it's so safe there, but, you know, anywhere. We didn't have a place. And they created their theology, their idea of God and godliness, as an exile theology. Just as we are exiled because we want to connect with God, God is in exile said the Hasidic masters, the rebbe's of Hasidism, starting with the Baal Shem Tov. And our job is to find the exile of God. That is, when God created the universe, this is the famous uh, idea of Lurianic mysticism, Isaac Luria, who said, if God filled Meloch Arts, the whole universe is filled with God's glory. I mentioned this last time, in class version number one, if God, the whole universe was filled with God, with God, then there was no space in which God could create the world, 
or even the universe. So according to the Jewish mystics, in order for God to create the world, God had to voluntarily contract God's self. Hebrew it's called tzimtzum. God had to go create some space into which God could create the world. Otherwise, there was no room for the world because it was filled up with God. That's how mystics think. What can I tell you? So, God voluntarily contracted God's self, which then becomes, by the way, a role model for all of us because part of our job, according to the Hasidic masters, is to imitate God. We want to be godlike. As humanly, God, we are made but Selim Elohim. It says in the Torah, chapter 1, human beings are created in God's image. Being created in God's image means trying to emulate those qualities of God that we as human beings can emulate. You know, compassion and justice and things that we hope are positive qualities of God. So here's another one. God voluntarily contracted God's self in a, in a fundamental sense of humility, so to speak, to allow space to create the world. In the act of creating the world, there were these sacred vessels of creation that couldn't hold God's energy and burst apart, and fragments and sparks of God went into the world and fell like, you know, the bottom of the ocean and hidden places. And our job as human beings is to go search for those sparks and redeem them, which is literally what tikkun olam came from. The idea of tikkun olam didn't start with social action and going out and helping the homeless, that kind of healing the world. It was a spiritual healing of the world by finding those sparks of God that God's missing, and we were partners with God in trying to heal God from God's exile. I know it's a brilliant idea, and you have no idea what I'm talking about, but neither do I. So that's, but that's what the mystics said. So you're in search of finding those sparks. That's part of why the Baal Shem Tov could say you can find God in the everyday, because every experience might have one of those hidden sparks of the divine within, and that's our job. So one of the primary ways they taught is through st- stories. It's amazing. So if you have one of these, everybody have one? Okay. I love the first story because it's entitled Nothing. I would have you read except for I'm in a podcast so I have to read it. Reb Aaron of Carlin visited his Rebbe, the Magid of Metzrich. That's Magid means teacher. Metzrich is a town. As often as he could. Returning home from one such visit, Reb Aaron was besieged by a great crowd of friends and fellow Hasidim. His followers Tell us what you have learned, Reb Aron, they cried. Tell us what you've learned. Just like every time I come to KI, people are yelling at me, <laughs> Rabbi Reuben, tell us what you've learned. No, just kidding. Okay, when the crowd grew, grew quiet, I'm retired, I can say these things, that all might hear what Reb Aron would impart to them. They had to get quiet because they didn't have a microphone then. He said, I learned nothing. <clears throat> Not sure they understood him. His friends asked again, no, what did you learn from the Magid? Again, Rabbi Aron waited for silence, and again he said, nothing. Certain that Rabbi Aron was denying them some great teaching, his friend said sarcastically, so, you bothered to make these many trips to Metzrich so that you can learn nothing? Exactly, Rabbi Aron replied. I gained the knowledge that I am nothing. Okay, so what does that mean? What? He's a teenager. <laughs> He's a teenager. Teenagers think they're everything. What are you talking about? It's the opposite. Teenagers think they're everything. About being nothing? No, I mean, teenagers think you're nothing. Oh, I, 
Parents are nothing. Now I get it. Yes. Susan again, what? I was just saying he learned meekness. Ah. Meekness, openness, awareness. Humility. Humility. Yes. Thank you. He learned humility. That he learned what I said earlier, you can learn if you go outside of the city and look up. You can't help but feel small if you see the vastness of space. And one of the great challenges of spiritual growth and development is learning humility and fighting arrogance. The arrogance of learning, because what happens when you learn is, you go, look at me, I just learned that. Look at me, I learned this. Look at how much I know. I learned all this stuff. I learned all these things. You know, I have two bachelor's degrees, two master's degrees, and a PhD. I thought when I got my PhD, I'm really cool. You know, I had a PhD now. It's like, it didn't change anything. It was just meant I stayed in school a long time. And so if you stay in school long enough, you keep giving you degrees. <laughs> You know, or they kick you out, one or the other, or they give you a degree. It, I mean, literally, that's all I meant. I just stayed in school a long time. You stay in school long enough, you get more and more degrees. But it's so easy to think, oh, look at how, how cool I am. Look how important I am. Look how big I am. I'm, and fill in the blank. I did so and so. You know, and part of our challenge as spiritual humans, as in, in the mindset of Hasidic masters is to fight our own natural arrogance of thinking that we're the center of the universe. Because after all, we are the center of our universe. It's part of the great dilemma of human life. We all grow up as the center of our universe. How can you not be? You're, you're the only one over there in your body is you. You're in that body that's carrying you around. So you see the world through your lenses. How often have you been amazed that somebody would have a different opinion than you had about something. It's like, how? I don't get it. Isn't it obvious? Whatever it is, it's so obvious, you know, whether it's about politics and who's running all those people, or, you know, how could you think this? It's so obvious. Because in our mind, through our lenses, through our eyes, through our ears, it's like, duh, how could it not be that? Because it seems so obvious to us. The fact of the matter is we only can see the world through our own eyes unless we cultivate the ability to do what every culture says in one version or another, walking in someone else's moccasins for a mile, seeing the world through their eyes. It's one of the great challenges. The Talmud says the same thing. You know, that the wise person is one who can see the world through someone else's eyes. Because it's hard to do. Because it takes an effort. Because it takes suspending your own conviction of your own certainty about life, to be able to entertain that someone else may have a different way of seeing and experiencing the world. It's the dance of having a relationship with someone, after all. Married or partnered or in work or in family. Either one, it's how can he not see what's so obvious? People say about their husbands all the time. Men never say that about their wives. But women say about their husbands, like, what's wrong with that guy? How can you not see that? It's so obvious. You know, because that's why how John Gray got so rich. Right? Men are from Mars, women are from Venus. 
Because we all see like this. Because in fact, unless you're able to suspend your own conviction of certainty and start seeing, trying to see the world through someone else's eyes, whether it's a different gender or whether it's a different life experience, a different culture, a different religion, a different racial experience, you know, that's the the beauty and the challenge of the fact that we live in a world that where there's so much intermarriage of all kinds going on that people are able to start seeing the world through other eyes than our own. That we don't live in these self-contained little communities anymore where everybody sees the world the same way and has the same sacred text and has the same you know manual for how to li- live. To me, that's the blessing of the challenge of all interrela- interfaith and interrelational relationships. And many of you know I'm very involved with the interfaith world all the time. Even wrote a few books about it. Nobody ever bought them, but I wrote them. So, <laughs> but I buy them and give them away, so it's just as good. Anyway, um, but that's what this is about. This nothing is, it's, is how, you know, it's, it's the question of how can nothing be positive? How can it be a positive to, to see yourself as nothing? It's not about self-esteem. It's not about, you know, you should have bad, poor self-esteem. You should have good enough self-esteem that you're able to look at the world through someone else's eyes. That takes self-esteem. That, ta- that takes a certain strength, inner strength, and faith in yourself that you're not going to fall apart if you entertain a different idea or a different perspective on the world. In this case, this nothing is exactly what you all said. It's working at humility. It's working at humility, at being able to see yourself as... Um, not the most important person in the world. Except for hopefully to your partner. Because everybody wants to be the most important person in their partner's life. Okay, turn the page. Number five. Avoiding the mud. Reb Meir of Premishlan and Reb Yisrael of Ruzhin were the best of friends. I could tell you about who these guys are if you want, but yet no two people could be more different. Reb Meir lived in great poverty. He never allowed even a penny to spend the night in his house. I love that phrase. But would rush outside to give it to the poor. Rabbi Yisrael, on the other hand, was wealthy, lived like a king. These two friends once met as each was preparing to take a journey. Reb Meir was sitting on a simple cart drawn by one scrawny horse because he didn't have any money and he was poor. Rabbi Yisrael, of course, was housed in a rich lacquered coach pulled by four powerful stallions. Reb Yisrael walked over to the horse hitched to Reb Meir's wagon. With mock concern, he inspected the horse with great care. Then he turned to his friend and with barely concealed humor said to him, I always travel with four strong horses, and this way, if my coach should become stuck in the mud, they'll be able to free it quickly. I can see, however, that your horse seems barely able to carry you and your wagon on dry and hard-packed road. There's bound to be mud on your travels. Why do you take such risks? Reb Mayer stepped down from his wagon and walked over to his friend, who was still standing next to Reb Mayer's horse. Placing his arms around his beloved old horse's neck, Reb Mayer said softly, The risk, I think, is yours, because I travel with this one horse that in no way can free this wagon if it becomes stuck in the mud. I'm very careful to avoid the mud in the first place. You, my friend, are certain you can get free if stuck, and thus do not look where you're going." Okay, so why did I pick this story? 
Why spend my time reading? What can you learn from this story? And in what way is it at all profound? Do you think? What seems? What? Number one, it's about taking things for granted. What else might you come up with from this story? Yeah, Anne. Ah, back to the notion of perspective and whether you see yourself as rich or poor. You know, the Talmud says, Ezuhu Ashir, who is wealthy, Hasameach Bechelko, the one who is happy with what you've got, what he's got. Because guess what? I know a lot of people at all the entire spectrum of wealth, that is, financial wealth, and all kinds of people, biggest houses to the smallest houses, and there's just as many people in the biggest houses who are unhappy with their lives as there are people in the smallest houses who are unhappy with their lives. In fact, when you look at the studies of countries that are happy, you magically discover that all those studies show that the poorer countries tend to be happier. People in them are happier than the richest countries. Why is that? Because of rising expectations when you're here. It's like keeping up with the Joneses. Whatever you've got here... Someone next door has got more. Someone next door, whatever car you've got, someone just got a better one, a bigger one, a newer one. You know, only here, when somebody got um, their new Tesla, they said, oh yeah, I just got a new Tesla. You know, that's the Prius of the Palisades. (laughs) It's not what you've got that determines whether you're happy or not, or whether you're content or not. It's whether you're content or not that determines whether you're content or not regardless of what you've got. And very often, it's actually literally the inverse. The more you have, the more you're in a world of competition where you're looking over your shoulder all the time at what you could have and what you want to have. Yeah? To me, the last line is the most telling. Um, And what it's suggesting is that the more you have, sometimes the less connected you are to the world. It gets... So often the more you have, the more it gets in the way of actually seeing what matters in life and what you have. So often we get so stuck and uh, distracted by things that we forget that the most important things in life aren't things at all. They're inevitably relationships and people are the most important, quote, things in our lives. Yeah, Jackie. It's a notion also that you can control anything. Ah, right. Beautiful. Notion that, so what? You have four horses. Guess what? If there's mud, there's mud, whether you got four horses or one, you know. And in fact, you may be a lot more maneuverable if you only have one horse than if you got the biggest car on the, on the, on the block and the heaviest car. You see those people with Hummers. I'm always going, how do they get anywhere? They're so heavy, you know. But it's so easy to get distracted by thinking, yeah, Bert. Ah, beautiful. Bert just shared that uh, quotation from Rabbi Heschel. To have more is not to be more. You know, it's not that your net worth is necessarily your self-worth. It's just your stuff. Somebody over here had a hand up? Yes. Yes. 
And another country heard from. So, yes, so the other way of looking at it is he certainly surrounds himself with these big stallions and has faith that whatever he may meet along the road, mud or not, he's going to be fine. You know, and in fact designed his life so that he can have that sense of faith that he's going to be fine. That's why I love these stories. Because they're stories, that's the power of stories. You know, Here's my favorite Hasidic story. It's not even on here. My favorite Hasidic story, I tell it to kids all the time because kids love this story. This is the story of the man with a wife and three kids living in a tiny little house and feeling like there's no room in his house. You've probably all heard this story. Drives him crazy. He feels like, you know, he's never going to have enough to build a bigger house. He goes to the rabbi, the rabbi in town, and he says, what am I going to do? I can't stand it. You know, I'm so poor. I got a wife. I got three kids. I got, there's no room in my house. And the rabbi thinks for a minute and says, okay, I tell you what, go home and bring a goat into your house. And then come back and see me next week. Because in those days, people actually listened to the rabbi. He went home, brought a goat into the house for a week. <clears throat> a week later, he comes back to the rabbi. He says, rabbi, like, now I have a wife and three kids and a goat in my house. Right. He says, I tell you what, here's what you should do. Go get five chickens and bring them into your house too. And then come back next week. Goes out and finds five chickens. He's got, puts them in the, in the house. Now he's got a wife and three kids and a goat and five chickens. I think I'm going to remember all these. Then a week later, a week later he comes back to the rabbi and he goes, okay, so like, oh, what are you trying to do? He says, just one more week and I promise you I'm going to solve your problem. This week I want you to go get a cow and put a cow in your house. So he goes, because he listens to the rabbi, of course. And he goes, and he brings a cow in his house. Another week goes by, comes back. He says, Rabbi, I've got a wife and three kids and five chickens and a goat and a cow in my house. I'm going crazy. I can't stand it. The rabbi says, okay, here's the solution to your problem. Go back home. Get rid of the goat. Get rid of the chickens. Get rid of the cow. Goes home. He gets rid of them. He comes back immediately to the rabbi. Oh, my God. There's so much room in my house. (laughs) Thank you so much. You know, it's the classic Hasidic story. It's all about perspective. It's exactly. You know, my, many of you know my daughter is a, uh, dog, has a dog rescue. She's a dog rescuer. And she uh, lives in a house in Santa Monica, most of the time with like eight dogs, sometimes 12 dogs, sometimes five to eight, usually eight, nine, ten dogs are in her house. She's rescued them. She's then, she's fostering them, whatever. She had to be out of her house this week for a week while they're doing some repairs and find some place for these dogs. So she, uh, in part, moved in with us in our temporary apartment that we're in because of our fire with three dogs. So she brought three dogs. We have no dogs in our apartment, of course. So she brought three dogs to the apartment. She said, oh, my God, so much room in here. There's only three dogs. (laughs) thinking there's three dogs running around my house. You crazy? (laughs) See, it's all perspective. Cable thinks it's like the greatest thing since sliced bread. There's only three dogs in the house. So, it's exactly right. You know, life is so much about, and one of the fundamental lessons of the Rebbe's, of the Hasidic tradition, is that attitude is everything. Attitude is everything. You know, whether you're poor or rich isn't about how much stuff you have. Yes, there are certain objective facts 
about whether you can feed your family or not. But, you know, we all know once you have clothes and a roof over your head and food, that's really all human beings and love. (laughs) That's what human beings need. Relationships and nurturing. Everything else is extra. You know, I mean, I told some of you, we had this fire in September in our house, September 10th to be exact. We've been out five months plus. So, well, they're not doing anything to rebuild, but they're supposed to be in any event. So because we had this fire and we had smoke damage everywhere, they took everything out of our house to be cleaned that wasn't burned, which was most not burned. So all of our furniture and all our piano and everything, everything's somewhere in commerce, the city of commerce somewhere, got cleaned. All of our clothes went to Burbank, to some special cleaners. There's a, these special people, they only work with insurance companies. And, you know, so there's this big warehouse in Burbank where our clothes are living. And um, if we want clothes, we can go to Burbank and <laughs> go to the warehouse and we can, they'll open up these boxes that have our clothes, which we did because we started out with no clothes. We had to move out, just leave that night. After they cleaned them, we went and got some clothes. We're in a smaller apartment, so, you know, they still have tons of our stuff there. So we went to get some clothes. Um because it was cold for a while here, you may remember. All of a sudden, I went, oh, I have sweaters somewhere. I have a lot of weather, you know? So we went to Burbank. We went to Burbank. They, there's this humongous warehouse with these huge boxes with people's names on them from all the different tragedies of people's homes, smoke damage and water damage and whatever. And, you know, there's the Rubens. There's the Rubens section. So, and there's <clears throat> these, like, lovely guys who work in the warehouse who are helping us. What are you looking for? Like, well, I need some coats, and we're looking, whatever, okay, well, I think we can find, because they're marked on the box. They pull out these huge, you know, clothing boxes, like if you're moving, big things, they're opening them up, and we're looking at all these clothes. Now, the reality of this experience for me was I'm looking at these men who are without question minimum wage employees, and the embarrassment of riches of the amount of clothing that I had in all these boxes that came out of my closet because I like clothes and I'm, I'm always acquiring and never getting rid of, as is Dee Dee, you know, and we have a, when we built our condo for it burned, we have this huge closet. We have, it's one of the things we did because we were building it. Fabulous closet, lots of clothes. And I was embarrassed, literally, standing there at looking at how much clothing I had. What a waste. Who needs all this clothing? There was no way I needed all of this stuff that I had. I was giving clothes. Anybody have nine and a half size shoes, I said, to these guys here? I'm giving clothes away to the guys who were working there while I was picking out some clothes because it just seemed so excessive how much stuff we had in life. I certainly don't need all the stuff that I have to be happy, it's not my value system, but there I was, with box after box after box. Yeah, and I'm just I'm saying, blessings and curses. So, you know, we're not moving all that stuff back in either, I, I can guarantee it. You know, we're giving most half of, at least half of it away as it comes. In the moment, it's sitting there, so it's sitting there. When they're going to move it out, we'll direct them where to go. Yeah. So, but that's the point. The point is, who is wealthy? Those who are content and happy with their lot, with who they are, with what they have. 
doesn't mean it's something wrong with wanting something nice. There's nothing wrong with wanting something nice. You know, in this process of this fire and everything else, we said, well, as long as we're rebuilding this place, as long as we're going to be out all this time and be so dis... We should get a couple of new things that will make us feel better when we move back in. So I bought a bigger television set. Did I need a bigger television set? No, but I knew it would make me feel better when I walked into the house. At least I got something new out of this after being out for six, seven months or whatever at my house. So, that's it. So, another story. Okay? The alphabet of sorrow. Number six. It once happened that one of the grandsons of Reb Menachem Mendel, remember Menachem Mendel? I quoted him in the beginning. A hero of, of Lubavitch fell into a deep funk. His friends came to lift his spirits. What can it be that's causing you this great sadness? They asked. The Aleph base, he replied. What's the Aleph base? The Hebrew alphabet. It would be Aleph Bet if you were speaking correct Hebrew, but they're Yiddish. They speak the Aleph base. He replied, the alphabet? They exclaimed. We all learned the Aleph Bet when we were children. We weren't depressed because of it. What do you know that we don't know? Not the whole alphabet, the young Chassid said, just the first two letters, Aleph and Bet. Seeing that his friends had no idea what he was talking about, he continued, the Aleph stands for the Hebrew word Anochi, I. The Bet, the base, stands for Breshit, which means in the beginning. Now do you see why I'm so upset? His friends looked at one another to see whether anyone had even the slightest inkling of what their friend was talking about. They finally returned their eyes to him, and they shrugged. Okay, this is what troubles me, the boy said. The I is always in the beginning of everything we do. Every beginning, every venture is preceded by the ego and selfishness. How am I ever to act selflessly when all efforts are tainted from the beginning? The bet meaning beginning. But the Aleph comes first. His point was, it's Aleph bet if it was bet aleph in order, I'd be happier. Be starting with beginnings without the I so much and everything being the I. This is such a classic Hasidic story. Why? Why would this be a classic Hasidic story, do you think? It's about perspective. It's about perspective. It's about? Ego. The Hasidim were really big on ego issues. Ego. You know, I against gave a high holiday sermon about ego and said that ego stood for everyone's greatest obstacle. <laughs> ego. I remember it well. No one else would remember it, but I remember it well. It's a brilliant sermon. Everyone's ego. Uh, my wife thought so. Everyone's greatest obstacle. <clears throat> we trip over ourselves. The I, the Aleph of Anochi. We trip over ourselves so much, and so often, because of the I that we bring to everything, we don't even see the other. And what does it mean to be experiencing a sense of the sacred in the world? It means getting your eye out of your sight. That was a good... Um, anyway. <laughs> yes, I like that, eyesight. There's a whole article on that one. In any event, that your eyesight shouldn't be eye first. That getting your eye out of your eyesight, you should be seeing other people in your eyesight. And it's one of the great struggles of life. That's what I said before, because, you know, here's where we come from, here's where we live. Having to hold that in, in abeyance and aside at the same time you're seeing the other. Right? That's the great challenge of life. And that's what 
the Hasidic teachings are fundamentally about. They're, how do I find God? Yes, of course I find God in myself. I find God in my body. You know, I get up in the morning, I say, say this, thank you God for waking me up. And then the blessing that I often talk about, the blessing about your body parts, which is the the second blessing that you're supposed to say in the morning for traditional Jews. Nekavim, nekavim, chalulim, chalulim. says, It's known before your holy throne that if that we're filled with holes and orifices, our bodies, and if the ones that were supposed to be opened were closed, if the ones that were supposed to be closed were open, it'd be impossible to exist. And you thank God, you know, who heals all flesh and makes wonders. The wonder is we have this body that works. And there's nothing more miraculous than our bodies. And there's nothing more immediate in our experience of the divine and the sacred and God and godliness than our bodies that carry us around every day, even as they grow older and do all the things that they do as they get older. I just, I just came from Pilates. I know what the body's supposed to do and can't do. But every day, the fact that when we get up and we do this is miraculous. I don't know how I do this, you know, until you can't do it suddenly, you know. And the fact that I can go pick this up, I take for granted until I'm someone who can't pick it up, you know. And we all have that experience in ourselves or in our loved ones with all of a sudden the things that we've taken for granted aren't working the same way. You know? And I know when I cut myself, it's what I am always refer to, I cut myself, I heal myself. It's going to heal. I don't know how I heal myself, but I know I'm a self-healing organism. That every time I've cut myself, I may leave a little scar, depends on how badly I cut, but, you know, I don't sit there and go, okay, heal, 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 get those white corpuscles in there to do whatever they're supposed to do. I don't know what they do. There's doctors in the room, they'll know, but, but I heal. What could be more miraculous? There's nothing more miraculous than that, than all these things that are running around my body, these billions and trillions of cells and organisms that are like self-contained and self-healing. And So we, we can look no further than the mirror to see God's presence. Of what we mean by God. What we in Jewish tradition mean by God is that power of creation that animates life. Hello, I'm looking in the mirror. There's life. Here I am this life, no matter how long it is, no matter how short it is. So, that's the finding the miraculous in the everyday. Okay, we'll do one more of these. Because I like them, because that's why I brought them. By the way, all of these, all of these I happen to take from this one book, because it was easy to take out of. It's a book called Hasidic Tales. I don't even know if it's still for sale. But it was translated and, and annotated. I didn't get that. But when you have this, there's commentaries all around it. If anyone interested by uh, one of my buddies, Rabbi Rami Shapiro. Rami Shapiro is a wonderful author. And a number of years ago, he put this collection of Hasidic tales together that's called Hasidic Tales. By Skylight, in case you're interested. Yeah. I just want to make one point. Please. It struck me in this story. It relates to what you talked about doing the funerals. Yeah. I've been to any number of funerals where people give eulogies yes. filled with I. Ah, yes. So, and there, 
For those who couldn't hear, Wayne's saying, it's been too many funerals where they, where they give eulogies that, that are filled with I. They're end up talking about themselves and who they are in relationship to the person who died, as opposed to the person who they're allegedly eulogizing. Yes, the, it's, I mean, so the, I came first like the olive comes first, the I comes first. It's, look, it's a big challenge in life. You know, and it's, and again, it's, it's a balance because I'm, I'm not saying and they're not saying you shouldn't feel good about yourself. You shouldn't have a good self-image. You shouldn't feel successful about who you are and, and glad for your own abilities and your own accomplishments. You know, this room is filled with accomplished people who've done all kinds of things. And yes, it's, a, it is perfectly appropriate to feel good about yourself and your own abilities and your own talents. It's just not to let them get in the way of seeing everybody else. As if you're walking around going, look how good. It's all about me anyway, right? Hey, do you have a hand up and I missed it? Yeah, you don't know. You you got the, the you also need the olive. This is the dance of life. You know, you need the olive. Here's the other thing. As long as we're playing Hebrew Hebrew games, what sound does olive make? Nothing. No sound. Olive is silent. It's a silent letter. That's what's so wonderful about the olive. In fact, why one of the great one of my favorite midrashim, one of my favorite rabbinic stories, is about the giving of the Torah on Mount Sinai. Right, and it says, when the children of Israel were gathered at the foot of Mount Sinai, and God spoke the Ten Commandments, spoke the Aserot had brought the Ten Commandments, they heard, but were terrified. They heard God speaking, but what did they hear? According to this midrash, they only heard the first word. The first word of the first commandment is Anochi, because God is speaking. I. Am the Adonai, your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. That's the first beginning prelude to the, to the Ten Commandments. But then the Midrash goes farther and said they actually didn't even hear the whole first word. They actually only heard the first letter of the first word. The first letter of the first word is Aleph. And it's silent. So what did they hear that was so terrifying? They heard the silence the holiness of holy silence in the universe out of which everything gets created. I love the Midrash. Because we live in a world where it's so hard to hear silence. There isn't any silence. You know, that's why people put, what do they call those? Noise-canceling headphones. You know, big business. Noise-canceling, because... Our lives are filled with noise. What do you mean noise? It should say music canceling. Noise canceling headphones. It implies that we're surrounded by noise that we want to do this with. Right? Which we do. How difficult is it to have a moment of silence ever? Ever. I knew that was coming. I knew that was coming. Silence can be deafening. Silence can be deafening. Silence can be such a respite. Silence can be a sanctuary. Silence is supposed to be what's in a sanctuary. That's one of the reasons they build those gigantic you know, cathedrals 
one of the reasons, other reasons, but is that the quality of silence and sound when you're in there is extraordinary and not the everyday and not the ordinary. And what is holiness in every language, certainly in Hebrew, in Jewish life, it's the extraordinary. That's what holiness literally means. It's, you know, what does it mean to be kodesh, to be kadosh? It means to be set apart from, essentially, everything else. Why is the Sabbath holy? Because it's set apart from the other days of the week. Why is any object a sacred object? Because it's set apart from its everyday, ordinary use. You know, how do candles become sacred objects on Friday night when they're just candles? Those little funky white candles with wicks coming out of them, suddenly, you know, it's like hocus-pocus and they become sacred objects, sacred flames. You know, that's, again, the magic of the human mind and the human spirit, that we take ordinary objects and we transform them by choice, by intention, by kavanah, by our intention, into something sacred. I mean, what's a candle? Say it all the time. It's just, you know, wax with a wick in it is a candle. But Shabbat candles that sit here on Friday night are not the same as the tall memorial candle that was handed to the widow today to go home and light that's going to burn for seven days on her mantle after her husband's funeral today, or the small little yortzite candles that we burn on the yortzite on the anniversary of the deaths of loved ones, or the candles that are on our birthday cake that our 10-year-olds get all excited about blowing out. They're all the same thing. They're all wax with a wick. But every one of them is transformationally different because we say so, because we imbue that object and that moment with holiness. We set it apart from the everyday. And that's part of the dance as well. To take the everyday and make it holy is to hold two things that are contradictory at the same time. You know, I can see the holiness of my body, but my body's with me all the time. It's every day. I can't ever get away from my body. Sometimes I'd like to get away from my body, but I can't. You know, it's doing whatever it's doing. You know, and yet... I see my body as a vessel of holiness. That was the whole spiel I gave you before. All the miracle of what's going on in this body. At the same time, it's the most everyday, ordinary thing in my life is this that's carrying me around. That's what it means to be a religious person in my view. It's to hold the world in a certain way. It's to look at the world in a certain way. It's to see the world through lenses that experience the world as filled with holiness in potential. It's exactly what the Hasidim are talking about. It's looking for those sacred sparks to redeem in the everyday experiences of life. It's an attitude about life. You know, it's either there or it's not. Is it there or is it not there? Is God there or God not there? Is holiness there or holiness not there? Is godliness there or not there? It depends on your attitude. It depends on how you see the world. It depends on how you interpret the actions of other people and yourself and the world in which you live. You know, that's your choice. What we have in Jewish tradition and in the Torah is a commandment to choose. You know, it's that famous phrase in Deuteronomy that says, See, I set before you this day the bracha and klala, the blessing and the curse, 
good and evil, blessing and curse, life and death. Therefore, it says, Ubacharta Bechaim, choose life. That's a famous phrase. Now notice what it doesn't say. It doesn't say from God, I set before you this day blessing or curse, good or evil, life or death. It says, huh, guess what? Back to that question of why we should bless God for the bad and the good, because it's what we get. Blessing and curse, good and evil, life and death, they're all of it, we have all of it, and we don't get to vote on whether we have all of it. We have all of it. And therefore, even in the reality of that there's good and bad and blessings and curses and life and death all around us, it's up to us to make choices every day. We get to choose how we act. We get to choose who we are. We get to choose how we experience how other people act and what life offers us and presents us with. We get to choose what that means. And the quality of our lives in many, many ways is directly a result, a reflection of the quality of our choices. What we choose to see. You know people that walk around as if they have a cloud over their heads all the time. Everything sucks. Everything's bad. Everything's this. They see the bad in everything. You know, whatever it is. Here, have these two loaves of bread. You didn't give me three? I need three. It's like, you know. I had a daughter like that once. Still do. You know. Here, would you like this? I want one more. It's always one more of whatever it is. It's people like that. Lots of people. They walk around. Whatever it is, it's not enough. Whatever it is, they want. It's, it's blue, but I wanted green. It's pink, but I wanted white. Whatever. And then there's the other people who are able to see two loaves of bread today. How cool is that? Whatever. Who are able to see the blessings in what they are presented with in life. That's the attitude that matters in life. That determines how we experience the world. Is the world good or bad? You know, there's a million stories of those. I probably have one in here somewhere. You know, there's the famous Hasidic story about that, which isn't in here, but I'll tell you anyway, is a story about the, the, the man who is about to move to a different town. He lives in Vitebsk, and he's going to go to Metzrich. And he meets somebody who lives in Metzrich. And he says to this guy, oh, I'm so glad to meet someone who lives in Metzrich because I'm about to move there. What's it like? What are the people like there? The guy says, oh, I don't think you should move. They are nasty. They are mean. They aren't friendly. They're They're cheap. I wouldn't move there if I were you. Guy says, well, I'm glad you warned me. Turns out, of course, the next day, he runs into another guy who's also from Metzrich. He says, oh, I'm so glad to run into you. You're from Metzrich. I just met someone from Metzrich yesterday and asked him what it's like. I'm thinking about moving there. What's it like? Oh, you are going to love it. Metzrich, it's like the best town in the world. People are so friendly, they're so wonderful, they're generous, they're giving, and you'll have the best experience. You should definitely move there. You know, this is like the obvious true stories of life. Is Metzrich good or bad? 
Are the people generous or are they cheap? Are they loving? Are they kind? Are they mean? Are they angry? Are they hostile? Yes, 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 and yes. It depends. You know, the world's filled with all those people. What do you see? What do you choose to focus on? What do you choose to decide is the most important? What's the foreground and the background of your life? That's what this is like. All those things are there. You get to make those choices. It's like the other famous story of the twins who grew up and had an alcoholic father. And one of them grows up and is an alcoholic. And the other grows up and doesn't touch the stuff, ever. And they're being interviewed. And the interviewer asks the alcoholic son, how come you're an alcoholic? What happened to you? And he said, what did you expect? My father's an alcoholic. Of course I'm an alcoholic. And he asked the other son, how come you're not an alcoholic and you don't drink? He said, well, what did you expect? My father's an alcoholic. It's like... That's the power of choice. That's the power of life. Oh, my God. I'm not going to give you another story. So, <clears throat> because time is fleeting. We read through six. Is that where we read? Seven. Did we read seven? What did we read? No, we didn't read seven yet. So, um, so here's the thing. I'm going to call it quits for the night. But <clears throat> um, if you're willing to come back, there'll be some more stories, these and some others. Uh, because I think that stories are a way that we learn in, in an enjoyable way, hopefully, about uh, some of the values of life and, and about ourselves, to see ourselves reflected in these stories. And, and as we tell these stories, and as you read these stories, and obviously you can take these with you, to ask yourself, which of these characters am I? Which of these characters am I more like? You know, which of the, and what lesson is it that I can take away <coughs> from these stories? Because like the stories in the Torah, which is why the Torah is so wonderful, has such powerful, meaningful stories, and, you know, we see ourselves reflected so often in the lives of the people we read about. And we use them as lessons for good or for bad, like the twins, the alcoholic father. You know, you get to choose whether the lesson is, that's my destiny, or I'm going to be the opposite of that, whatever that is. And we do that all the time in our lives. You know, we learn from friends, we learn from parents, we learn from family, we learn from colleagues of what we want to be like and what we don't want to be like. But that's part of the, the challenge of, uh, of living in this world, is recognizing and taking responsibility for the choices we make and the, the, the qualities we choose to emulate and the qualities we choose to make sure we don't emulate. And in part, that's why also there are 70 names for God. Because uh, some of those names have to do with uh, God's might and warrior-like qualities. When we're fighting, when we're under siege, the rabbis say God's name is Adonai Tzvaot, the God of the armies, the, the God of the shield, Magen David. You know, the shield of David is one of the names of God. The, when we need protection, when we stand in the high holidays and we say, Avinu Malkenu, our father, our sovereign, it's as if we are in need of a, of a loving, caring, benevolent parent in our lives. It's not that we think God is like a boy, um, necessarily. 
Some people probably do, but, you know, and part of the challenge, remember, <clears throat> this is a Reconstructionist congregation. Um, next year I think I'll teach a little about Reconstructionism. But one of those things is Mordecai Kaplan. I'm working on a book on Mordecai Kaplan at the moment and quotations from Kaplan. And literally, <clears throat> my favorite quotation from Kaplan, which I've also said many times, is that the greatest challenge of the modern Jew is to learn how to take the Torah seriously without having to take it literally. And I think that's true of all religious texts and all sacred texts and all ideas that are religious ideas, including ideas that we wrestle with about God and holiness and the divine. It's to learn how to take these, how do we wrestle with these seriously without getting stuck in the literalness of our words. Because the rabbis also say, you know, Dibrat Torah Kilshon B'nai Adam, that the Torah speaks in the everyday language of human beings because that's the only language we've got. So, we, you know, we talk about these challenging, difficult subjects in life with everyday words that we then take literally because they're everyday words when they weren't intended literally. And to remember that those Torah scrolls, somebody wrote those. Somebody or bodies, we don't know. No one was there. Somebody wrote every one of those stories. Somebody wrote those stories about Abraham and wrote those stories about Isaac and wrote those stories about Jacob. Somebody that didn't like most of them, I think. And wrote those stories about Moses and how they acted in their family struggles. And and in part, all of those stories make us grateful that who we are and the families that we've got and our lessons that we can draw on. That the Hasidic tradition then takes and turns into stories about the <coughs> the common man and woman, mostly men, because they were men writing these stories about, you know, men. So they're very heavily male stories. But it's the every person, literally. It's seeing yourself in the every person of of uh, the Carpathian Mountains um, and figuring out. So <coughs> next time, I'm going to have some more stories, and then I'm going to ask you to tell me a story. So if you have a Hasidic story that you learned from someone um, and uh, you're willing to share that I may have a few of those which will be a little bit of a challenge because it's still going to be on a podcast and so I'll have to repeat some of it but thank you all for coming for to this evening it's always a pleasure to see you and um, some of you I'll see you next time <clears throat>